following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Good morning. You are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson on Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. And we have another jam-packed Friday show for you this week. First up, we are fortunate to have with us in studio Mark Chenery, who's the co-founder and director of Common Cause Australia. And uh, Common Cause is a st- Australia is a growing network of people working to engage cultural values to create a more equitable, sustainable and democratic society. Mark is a communications expert and trainer who works with mission-driven organisations and political parties to incorporate a values-based approach to messaging. His background includes advertising and journalism and heading up the community engagement program of an international human rights organisation in Australia. He co-founded Common Cause with Dr Eleanor Glenn and Angela Rutter. So welcome to the show this morning, Mark. Thank you for coming in on this really frosty, chilly morning. Morning. Are I'm you, happy to be here. Are you a cyclist? How did you get in this I morning? I am. I, I cycled in just as Scotty was turning in. Right. You and Scotty are the brave souls. I get in my car and turn my heater up. So. I quite enjoyed the cycling this yeah. morning because there's more traffic. The cars aren't whizzing past quite as fast, so it felt yeah, a little bit more Yeah, they're all skidding on the black ice, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark, would you be able to give us a little bit of background um, about what led you to, to create Common Cause? Oh, look, the way I tell this story typically involves uh, the name Tony Abbott. Because I used to live in Manly, which is a lovely beachside suburb in, uh, in Sydney. Uh, and Tony Abbott was my, uh, my esteemed local member. Um, and he was then opposition leader. And uh, he was running for election and he wanted to be the Prime Minister of Australia. And I, sh- I thought, surely not. <laughs> surely this would never happen. Uh, I remember laughing when he uh, ousted Turnbull thinking this is just this is great news for you know progressive causes because Liberal Party is just going to tank with this guy at the helm, you know misogynistic statements that you know, he's well known for and you know three line three word slogans kind of thing. Um, and then he became prime minister. And then people who lived around me, who I thought were lovely people for the most part, um, yes, a lot of them were liberal voters generally. But you know, I, I I thought more. I thought that they would see through Tony Abbott, and they would at least there would be a slump for him or something. Um, and then, despite the campaign he ran, which was so individualistic, so divisive. Um, and sort of racist undertones um, of his sort of, I don't want to say boat people policy, that's (laughs) the way he thought about it, stop the boats. Um, To see him then elected was just a bit of a jolt for me. I just, and being in the heart of his electorate just made it really personal and I thought, uh, I I can't let this happen again. I've got to do everything in my power to, to make sure that someone like this cannot win another election in Australia. And I had previously come across the Common Course approach. Um, wasn't something that we developed. It was something developed in the UK. And I thought if, if people working on progressive causes knew the importance of engaging helpful values in the way that they talk about the important issues they talk about, then we could strengthen those values in Australia and and reinforce them in our narratives in terms of like how we do election campaigning. Um, and then that will reduce the likelihood, at least, of someone like Tony Abbott becoming Prime Minister in the future. Well, I had a look at your website last night and there's a wonderful article in your news and resources section about the election, about you know how the election was swung and the research that you put into that and looking at why people, um, you know, why people's values aligned with something that you wouldn't think they would at a time like this. It's like we've just had the bushfires, we had this climate, climate refugees in our own country and then we have the Morrison government wanting to do more gas, more coal 
and you know they they got elected on some of those um, values. So it's it's really confusing to a lot of people to say how does someone that seems to be in opposition to what the majority wants get elected? What's happening to the electorate? What's happening to the people and their values? Yeah, look, I mean, and and to be honest, a lot of my job really is involved in talking to people working on social and environmental causes and convincing them that people aren't horrible people, right? And it depends on it depends on who's in government at the time, um, whether we feel that uh, our fellow citizens are horrible or, or lovely people um, that it sort of switches on a dime um, and I think the, the the key to understanding what's going on is that people everyone has different values uh, that we prioritize um, but at the same time our values aren't fixed and they oscillate on a day-to-day basis and a moment-by-moment basis because they can be primed by our context. So in an election campaign, if all we hear from all the major parties, for example, and even the minor parties is the importance of the economy or the importance of looking after yourself or what's in it for you when it comes to budget time, for example, then that starts to shape the way in which we evaluate which values are relevant when I uh, head to the election um, uh, booth. Mm. So... I think that's a lot of what's going on. Mm. So what are we actually talking about here? How do you define values? I mean, this has got to be a tricky one. Uh, uh, Look, people have lots of different ways of thinking about what values are and and all of us know what values are, but we probably haven't forced ourselves to define what Mm. exactly Mm. are they. Um, The definition that social psychologists use upon whose research Common Course is based uh, is that values are guiding principles for people that connect automatically and subconsciously to our emotions and that is how they drive us. So if uh, something we value, if we experience a value that we prioritise already or we witness it, um, for example, if, if we witness an act of equality or social justice and that is a value that matters to us, then uh, that automatically makes us feel good, right? So then we want to see more of that. So perhaps we do something that that creates that sort of situation. Um, whereas if uh, we witness the opposite of what we value, so injustice or inequality, and uh, that then automatically connects to negative emotions uh, and those negative emotions have the same effect in that we want to avoid those situations. So we're constantly being driven by the values that we prioritise at a subconscious level typically um, by the way in which they connect to our emotions, positive and negative. So values aren't all about feeling positive and great and, you know, we do a lot of uh, work with organisations on values-based messaging, so making sure that values are at the heart of how they're talking to people about their issues. But it's not all about fluffy, lovey-dovey, happy feelings all the time. Um, it can be very much about engaging uh, negative feelings in people to show them the way in which uh, our world doesn't align with their values and, and driving them to try and change that because mm-hmm. they feel bad about it sometimes. So you could take an intrinsic value, say someone who really values family and, mm-hmm. and supporting and loving and caring for your family, and you could take a really positive spin on that and show that there's, you know, refugees, no one puts their children on a boat because they want to, right, and, and goes across the ocean in terrible circumstances. They're trying to protect their family. They're trying to protect those that they love and give them a better life. So you could look at that idea of values and say, look at these people, they value family, let's help them protect their families. Or you could do the Tony Abbott spin and say, you know, we've got to protect our families and our land and our resources and not let other people come and take them. So you can basically, you know, do a amygdala hijack on people, right, with their values. They can have the same value, but you can spin it in different ways. So that's what I I get the sense that you're working on is how to help people recognise that and 
when it's being done to them <laughs> and maybe make emotionally intelligent decisions around it. Yeah, and, and what you've just described there is mm. the difference between engaging what we call benevolence value, mm. so concern for other people in our sort of close mm situation mm -hmm. so people with whom we have frequent contact our fam family our friends and mm -hmm. our community and so on um which is the sort of the former version of you know this is what loving families mm -hmm. do they they look after their children they do the mm -hmm. best thing for mm -hmm. them um versus what we call security values so fear-based values um which tend to be a bit more in can be more individualistic mm -hmm. not always in which we are concerned about our own safety our own family security mm -hmm. and perhaps uh, in a way that trumps the needs of others, right? So when we're thinking, I have to protect what is mine and I don't want that to change, and if that if someone else is screwed over in the process, then that's the way it's going to have to be kind of thing. Um, and we know that security values tend to make people think and act in more antisocial uh, and, and environmentally destructive ways, whereas things like benevolence values are known as intrinsic values and they make people think and act or more likely to make people think mm. and act in more pro-social, environmentally responsible mm. ways. Um, but again, it's not about saying some values are good and some are bad, right? Because we have all ha had stabs of fear <laughs> where we think that the natural thing to do is to protect my loved one and I don't care what else is going on in the world right now, they're the ones that are... And, and survival instinct, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it's very, very normal and natural and human mm. to have all of these different mm. values in what we call the values map mm -hmm. to be engaged in us and to drive us. Mm. Um, but we just know in a really predictable fashion mm -hmm. what happens to people's uh, attitudes and behaviours when different values are guiding them. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way our society is structured too often engages those individualistic mm -hmm. values sort of in, a, in an unnatural way perhaps. And that is, I think, at the heart of what we see as, as problems in the world in terms mm -hmm. of social and um, environmental bad outcomes. Mm. Mm. And mainstream media certainly takes advantage of that to yeah. um, boost ratings and <laughs> steer public opinion for certain political candidates. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that yeah. old mantra of if it bleeds, it leads, yeah, that's yeah. not given anybody a lot of good news, is mm. it? What do you think the sort of negativity of the mainstream media does to people in this sense? Well, here's the thing, right? So there's there's positive and negative emotion and then there's values. And there are different types of values. There's altruistic values, there's more selfish values, there's conservative values in terms of keeping things as they are versus openness to change values. Um, and all of those values excluding security values, which only make us feel negative, um, can either engage positive or negative emotions. So if the media is running a story in which they're highlighting injustice or they're highlighting something deeply unfair or something um, that sort of sort – the dishonesty of a politician, for example, and they're focusing on that, yes, that is a negative story, but it might be engaging what we would – classify as useful values because when people think about the importance of honesty, they're more likely to think and act in more pro-social ways. Um, but I, I, I agree with you, Scotty, there is a problem <laughs> with uh, a lot of that is very individualistic in the way that they project those stories, sort of this is, you know, this group over here, this social group over here is, you know, a threat to all of us. That's a sort of narrative that tends to dominate. Uh, a lot of media outlets, and I think that's deeply problematic, more because of the values that it engages rather than whether it makes us feel sort of positive or negative emotions. Mm. Yeah, we saw just um, around this, or actually a little bit before this time last year, just post-bushfires, and in, in that period where the bushfires 
had just ceased the bushfire season and COVID was just starting. So we had a lot of guests in here who were um, victims of the bushfire, people who'd lost everything and people who were starting up organisations to try and help and support the communities who were deeply affected by the bushfires. And we heard some really, really powerful first-hand stories from some folks in the Cabago Kwama area down on the south coast. And they said when, when they're at the peak of the bushfires, you know, people have lost everything, they've got no drinking water in their towns, they're, you know, basically on a day-to-day survival living in tents. And they said this one Wonderful, generous gestures were happening, particularly coming from Canberra, that people were sending down flats of drinking water for them. And they were writing personal messages on the bottles, just trying to help them lift their spirits and say, we're thinking of you, we're here to help you, you know, we love you, we care about you. And then COVID happened. And they said they saw within a 48-hour period, all the drinking flats of water dry up. As in no more drinking flats of water being sent down to them because everybody was now hoarding flats of drinking water. At the beginning of COVID, you know, nobody really knew what was going to play out. So people were just hoarding resources. So suddenly the bushfire victims who were in a worse situation to deal with COVID no longer were their focus, even though they genuinely cared about them. Now they've shifted away from that. So that's an example of what you're talking about before. And then you have, you know, media spin on things. The media forgot about the bushfires and the bushfire victims as soon as COVID was hitting the headlines. Yeah, look, and no doubt the media focus probably helps influence things in terms of whether we're, we're focused on bushfire uh, survivors or not, for example. Um, but I, I think it's, it's, it's easy to think that people – well, okay, so the, the dominant story – about humanity, which, to be honest, um, has really been driven by the way in which I studied economics at, at uni, so I'll go into a bit of economics here. It's really driven a lot by um, sort of homo economicus. So this idea that human beings are rational, utility maximizers, and inherently selfish. Um, but that's okay, say the economists, mm-hmm. because if we all just pursue our narrow self-interest, then the overall uh, outcome will be good for everyone, and that's how capitalism works. Um, but there's actually not a lot of evidence from from social psychology or the sort of emerging field of behavioural economics that that actually reflects reality. Human beings, for the most part, are overwhelmingly more concerned about the needs and welfare of others than they are about themselves. Um, And when times are tough, such as during disasters, there can be elements of selfishness that emerge, but also there's quite the opposite that emerges. So um, in bushfire, during the bushfires, you know, that's what we saw. We saw people go if I was in that situation, that would be absolutely horrible. What can I do? You know, whatever it is, I want to do that. And, and for the first time, I mean, you can see that I'm not a particularly uh, well-built human being, but, um, you know, I was thinking, could, could I be a volunteer firefighter? Could I do that? I don't know if I'm physically capable. I've got a bad back. But I was still thinking that's for the first time in my life. I thought, I just, I just there's too much. Someone needs to, people need to put themselves on the line here. And that's where my head was at. Um, but with the pandemic, I think we focused a little bit too much on the the selfishness that did happen, the hoarding that happened. Um, and I, I think we, we could focus a little bit more on the natural sort of community stuff that happened as well, where people were setting up community Facebook groups, for example, or posting um, letters into their neighbours' mailboxes and saying, you know, I'm here for you if you need me. And and there was a sense of a greater level of connection that I'd, that I'd seen before. And it was very localised. Mm. You know, it was very much around, oh, my God, I didn't know my neighbours and all of a sudden now I'm talking to them and, and caring about them and feeling emotion. Um, but, yeah, I think there's, there's flip sides of that and I think it's too easy to, to see the negatives mm-hmm. in, in situations like that. And it's, I guess, choosing what gets highlighted. The, the media, if they had chosen, the mainstream media could have focused on a lot of those things and maybe changed how communities um, behave during COVID 
You know, they could have been people only thinking about how can we make this work for everybody instead of how can I make sure I'm okay. Yeah, and look, when the media highlights um, the fact mm. that toilet paper is sold out at a couple <laughs> of supermarkets and all of a sudden it's sold out everywhere two days later, <laughs> that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a lot of what happens is the media tells us that we are living in a selfish society mm-hmm. and then people start to think, well, maybe I need to look after number one if mm. everyone else is doing the same. And I think that's one thing that makes me really passionate about promoting the Common Cause approach to uh, organisations working on important causes because if, they, if we can realise that people are absolutely capable of, if not thirsty, for uh, being engaged at a sort of a, a more, more helpful values level, then um, we can actually not we can reinforce those values. We can bring them out, and we can actually influence attitudes and behaviours in the process. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just what you were talking about before about that study that said humans are intrinsically selfish, and you know, would take care of themselves first. There's actually another more recent study been done uh, by a um, journalist and psychologist called Lynn McTaggart, and she wrote the book The Field. I'm not sure if you've come across that. It's very not popular yet. in the US. It's probably not really but I've, hit I'll Australian add it to shores my yet. Reading list uh, now. Yeah. She, <laughs> Thank you. Um, there was something called the Intention Project, which was carried out and was between Lynn McTaggart, Dr. Bruce Lipton and Greg Braden. And that was around actually looking at what really matters to human beings intrinsically. Like when we come on the planet, if we're fairly normal functioning, we're not a psychopath or a sociopath, what matters to us? And they found that the three things that were intrinsic to human values were um, that they wanted to care about others and themselves. They wanted to share with others and themselves and they wanted to be fair. Yeah. So that sort of trumps the whole idea that we're, we're selfish beings and that we're only looking out for our That's own interests. That's the permaculture principles. Yes. <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, as I said, um, I, I'm a bit of a gardener. Garden mirrors life, right? Mm-hmm. The gardening mm-hmm. mirrors life. Earth yeah. care, people care, yeah. fair yeah. share. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. got it all in there. Yeah. Yeah. Plus an extra word. Yes. <laughs> and look, and look I, haven't, I haven't heard of that particular study, mm-hmm. but it, it, you know, it in no way surprises me. There is mm-hmm. just so much research looking at what, really matters to human beings around the world, including here in Australia, and all of it suggests that people are much more um, driven by the need to look after each other than they are to just look after themselves. There is a minority of Australians and people around the world who are more selfish than they are altruistic in their orientation. Um, But again, depending on the way in which we have been normal, we've been told to act in certain situations, like when it comes to voting, um, we can switch into our our more selfish values mm. when we when we are in those situations, and then it becomes a, a self fulfilling prophecy when we're told to be selfish at the polls, and then we vote selfishly as opposed to you know this the last election was supposed to be the climate election right and didn't quite work out that way. Um, that's because the Liberal Party ran a really good, succinct, clear campaign mm. saying be selfish, even right? the slogans, right? Yeah. With their slogans and and with their trucks with big billboards about, you know, tax and don't, you know, worry about the economy and all this stuff. Um, Whereas Labor ran a really confusing Mm -hmm. campaign where they just threw a lot of stuff at the wall and hoped that some of it would stick without a really clear story about who we want to be as a society. And maybe we're feeling a little bit overconfident that they would And uh, no doubt that was part of it. Mm -hmm. No doubt that was part of it. They felt they had a mandate. Uh, They were going to introduce lots of interesting things, um, but they just didn't tell a very good story around it. So throwing a lot of stuff at the wall, that's like, I've I've been to your course a few years ago and there was this this map, I think it's the values map that you were uh, referring to, and there must be a hundred different values scattered around this map. How did they 
I guess, determine what all these different values were and, and how did they wind up in the spots that they were on the map? Yeah, so so the, the value system that we, or the values model that we follow is uh, the universal values model of Shalom Schwartz. So that's a really annoying tongue twister name that I have to repeat all the time. But uh, <laughs> Mr. Shalom, uh, when he uh, developed his model for the first time and published it in the early 90s, the way in which he did that is collecting international survey data from tens of thousands of people around the world. So over 60,000 people um, are to, on their sort of dominant values. And he looked at that over, over 60 or so countries and he put it all into a, a big database and then ran a multidimensional scaling analysis to see what are the relationships between these values in terms of what people prioritize. And what he discovered is that were not 100, but 58 right. <laughs> universal values, values <laughs> that tended to occur consistently across countries and cultures and socioeconomic groups and so on to some degree or another. Um, it's not to say that everyone around the world values all the same mm. stuff, um, but there was incredible, con incredible consistency in, in these values. And what he found is that when he ran that uh, multidimensional scaling analysis, what you effectively get is like this plot of different values sort of scattered around an A4 piece of paper, if you like, um, which uh, tends to be really consistent in the way those values are orientated. So values that are close to each other on the map are related to each other. So if one person holds one of those values strongly, then nearby values are likely to also be prioritised by that person. Whereas values on the opposite side of, of the values map, if they're far away from each other, they tend to not be associated in that same person. So mm -hmm. the same person will not value those two things really highly. Um, and that map has since been uh, sort of used for hundreds of, of social psychology experiments exploring and validating those findings around the world in the sort of three decades since um, with incredible consistency. So there seems to be something about human beings and the way in which we value things and the way in which values are either related to each other or oppositional to each other, um, which is incredibly consistent just by virtue of being human beings. And obviously it manifests in different ways in different cultures and so on, um, but there is something uniquely human about this value system, something that brings us together in a way. Mm, yeah, interesting. And then on top of that, there was like another layer of, of I guess, those groupings that yes, somebody so has, has overlaid on top of that. Yeah, so he, so, so what um, uh, Mr. Schwartz did then, or Professor Schwartz, is he... Uh, he then thought, look, what I can see here out of these random scattering, or not random, but, you know, quite logical scattering of values is 10 distinct values goals or core values of human beings. So on the one hand, there are values like benevolence, uh, which we spoke about a moment ago, sort of loyalty, responsibility, helpfulness, love, uh, universalism values, social justice, equality and wisdom and so on, which are altruistic values. Uh, what he called self-transcending values. And then in opposition to them, on the other side of the values map, values that don't tend to be correlated in the same people are power and achievement values. So power values are things like wealth and um, social power and social recognition, the things that enable us to, uh, to control resources and to control other people. Um, and then achievement values are things like success and ambition and intelligence in a competitive sense, being more successful, more intelligent, uh, more capable and so on. And these are known as self-enhancement mm -hmm. values. And they're sort of an example of the two quite important uh, categories of values that mm -hmm. we focus on a lot. So say, for instance, you know, I'm trying to imagine a Venn diagram here of all these values intersecting. Yep. Um, you know, something like you said, the power values 
um, could be partnered with um, one of the intrinsic values and you could produce a really great philanthropist. You know, you could say someone who values that wealth generation, materialistic in some ways, but also wanting to use it for the greater good. Well, here's the thing. So the, so values are about why we do what we mm-hmm. do, not who we are or what we have mm-hmm. or or even how we do mm-hmm. things. So if you have a great philanthropist mm-hmm. and they are motivated by some sort of intrinsic value like social justice mm-hmm. or protecting the environment, let's go with social justice, mm-hmm. then um, they wouldn't it's unlikely, given the, what we know about how values work, that they would value power as strongly. Or at least when they're thinking about their philanthropic actions, power values are sort of uh, are sitting in the background at that moment um, because they are conflicting. If that philanthropist is making a decision about which organisations to give money to, for example, and they're faced with a situation in which there's a group that they can give money to that will give them greater prestige and perhaps greater social power because maybe they're, they're groups that then have lots of influence in society and can bring prestige on onto that philanthropist versus perhaps a group of organisations that are doing more grassroots, maybe more, more, more effective work, um, and they had to choose between giving, then it depends on whether they're driven by their power values or their more social justice orientated values, who they give the money to, right? And so this is how our values are influencing us. Um, yeah. Because I've always wondered, you know, you look at um – the whole concept of politicians and I would never want to be a politician because that's not my calling and also I think it would be very stressful for me mm. to be in those situations but somebody who's drawn to to lead in in that arena could have really great core values and we could really desire to have that person elected mm. but at, at some point in their in their climb to getting elected like I saw this happen I lived in Canada and I saw this happen in Canada with our yeah. premier of British Columbia who got elected on for all the right reasons and even Trudeau got elected for all the right reasons and then the actuality of them being in office was very different and a lot of the values that they're elected on seem to evaporate all of a yeah. sudden yeah yeah look I think there is um so Values are motivations, right? They're guiding principles. They're the mm-hmm. things that make us do the things that we do. Um, and, but they are, they are both constrained by and enabled by our environment mm-hmm. and our context. So I spoke earlier at the very beginning really about priming values mm-hmm. and how values aren't just inside us. They are engaged by our context. And I think in a, in a political context in which it is so much about power mm-hmm. and competition, the way in which we've set up the political mm-hmm. game, um, I think it is – it would be it would be quite hard mm-hmm. for politicians to avoid falling into the trap of being driven by their power values mm-hmm. because that's constantly what's being reinforced mm-hmm. in their environment. Then in addition to that, there's also an institutional constraint on the exercise of certain values in which if you want to get to the position of being in power, um, if the rules of the game are set up in a way in which you need to, you know, you need to be someone who prioritises power and sort of... Mm-hmm clubs people over the head in order to climb over them then that is that is like then those are the people that emerge right um i think it's i think it's a more complicated picture than that when you look at our politicians um sitting you know across the lake (laughs) i think um there's a there's a combination of people there and i think driven by a combination of values probably the um the institution primes unhelpful values in a lot of our politicians in the media who sort of drive their daily (laughs) daily tasks um but at the same time i think there i think there is a mixture and it's it's too easy to assume that just because we see the ugly side of politics so much that the people are only one way you know that they're only driven by power or whatever and in a lot of the a lot of organizations we work with do political advocacy 
Um, sometimes they do public campaigning, but sometimes they're more focused mm. on engaging directly with politicians. And I always encourage them to think about the politician they're engaging with, whoever they are from whichever political party, as a full human being capable of caring about all sorts of different stuff. Don't just go with the stereotype vision of, of who that person is. Look at their maiden speech. Often that reveals a lot about what people really cared about when they entered politics before, uh, you know, the whole power corrupts yeah. business happens. How, how does the party system fit into an individual's value in that sort of environment? Well, different parties yeah. prioritise different values, right, are driven by different values. And I... I'm a little bit reluctant to sort of say these are the values of the different political parties. Oh, no. Um, because the, the value system in the way that we think about it is much more at an individual level. Individuals have this biological thing inside them somehow that drives their priorities in life in really predictable ways. Um, and our society, our culture, the culture of political parties, the sort of mission statement of political parties, their policies – are all trying to express them and find that commonality between the people that constitute that party. And, and they do shift and, and move around over time. So I think being in a political party and the processes of that party, for example, whether it's more grassroots um, driven or whether it's more top down, will reinforce certain values. And I think that's, yeah, that's mm. And I imagine who you decide if you're going to go into politics, which party you're going to align yourself with reflects where your values lie too, right? Yeah, like who, who you're attracted right. to. Yeah. Um, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, one of the things um, we noticed, we did a, um, a series of interviews during the last ACT Legislative Assembly elections, mm -hmm. and we had a few of the uh, independents and some of the Greens in here, and it was a bit of a green landslide, as you know, during yep. uh, the ACT elections. So I would, you know, love to be able to have the chance to talk to the people we interviewed again now they've been in the Legislative Assembly for a while and ask them, so, you know, what you thought you were going to do and what you thought was possible and what it's like in reality and how has that have impacted the decisions you the values based based messaging and decisions that you have to make on a daily basis like that to me would be fascinating to hear mm. that they probably want to do it off air but <laughs> <laughs> uh, well that, that's actually true it might be a little bit hard for, for someone to say you know oh well no i'm totally changed now yeah. um wouldn't quite work with the electorate no I, th I think you should do that. I really think you should because I think it would be interesting as a little bit of a social experiment. Mm -hmm. And also just, you know, I, full disclosure, I, I did some work with the Greens on their election campaign and um, and the, the outcome of that I think speaks to the power of um, of having that clear intrinsic value narrative. That was something that we focused on from the very beginning. We knew that the Liberals, for example, were likely to try and drag the debate down into mm. things like rates and, you know, what's in it for you and how can you pay less tax um, and still get everything you want. Um, <laughs> it didn't quite work for them. And, and the Greens chose not to focus on that because we know that um, politically but also uh, values-wise, people in Canberra are incredibly progressive. I mean, I, I, I come from, you know, Tony Abbott's electorate, so a bit of a culture shock to move here. But um, they are people here are very progressive. They very much already identify that they care a lot about other people and the environment and they want to see the best for them. And the last thing that the Greens should do here is, is sort of pander to that individualistic narrative around a campaign. And, and they chose to avoid that and it worked really, really well for them. So I guess now might be a good little time to introduce priming. Mm -hmm. We mentioned it very briefly before. But yeah. How does priming with values work? 
So priming is the process of engaging a value in someone regardless of that person's normal values disposition, the way they tend to prioritise their values. And what we know from a range of different studies is that it is possible to engage any value in any one and uh, on average that will change the way people think and act as a result. So, for example... It's this brilliant study that I absolutely love. Um, I'm not going to remember all the details because I don't have my slide in front of me. <laughs> um, but it is a study in which people were primed with different values. They were asked to reflect on why are these values important? So on the one hand, there was a group that was asked to reflect on benevolence values. I think it was honesty and loyalty were the values they were asked to say, sort of why are these values important? Write as many reasons as you can within two minutes kind of thing. Uh, another group was asked to reflect on achievement values, which are sort of what we call extrinsic values, which tend to drive more antisocial environmental attitudes and behaviours. And uh, they were reflecting on things like, uh, I think it was intelligence and success. Why are these things important? And so people randomly assigned to those groups. And then a third group was a control group. So they had a completely values neutral task. I think they were writing about items of furniture or something like that. And then all of these groups were told, thank you for your participation in the study. It's been brilliant. Um, but on your way out, do you mean, mind seeing my colleague in the next room just to fill in some forms? So one by one, they go into the next room and uh, this incredibly clumsy colleague who was actually an actor, every single time as people sit down, knocks over a cup of 10 pencils. And the real test was how many pencils did these people pick up in the allocated time? <laughs> uh, and uh, as it turns out, the control group picked up lots of pencils because, and, and value studies show this, most people are nice people. Most people <laughs> care more about others than themselves and are willing to help others. Um, but those who picked, who uh, had been primed with sort of emphasising those benevolence values, honesty, loyalty, picked up significantly more pencils than the control group because they had had a part of their value system engaged which tends to activate more pro-social and environmental attitudes and behaviours, including helpfulness. Whereas those who had been temporarily primed to, to reflect on the importance of achievement um, picked up less pencils than the control group because they had had uh, a part of their value system activated, which we know tends to lead people to think and act in more selfish, individualistic, mm -hmm. antagonistic ways mm -hmm. uh, and, and more discriminatory ways as well. And, and study after study shows the exact same really predictable effect, engage this value, and as a result, people are more or less likely to act and think in different ways. Well, you've got a bit of a background in advertising, I believe, as well, right? So this, I do. This and, would play and what I do today that, is to pay for my of sins. Advertising. Yes. Yeah, look, I, um, I sort of landed into advertising mm. by mistake. Uh, like I said before, I studied economics, uh, political economy mm. at, at university, mm. desperately wanted to work for an international aid organisation. Mm. That was my sort of idealistic mm. teenager brain. Um, and I ended up doing that, <laughs> but it took me a few years because it turns out that, you know, working in the nonprofit se sector is actually really competitive and it's really hard to get into. Um, so a friend of mine ran an advertising agency, said, Mark, look, you, you've been struggling to find a job after leaving uni. How about you just work for me, do a bit of project management? So I joined the agency, ended up sort of joining the, the board of the agency and we expanded that agency and I had lots of fun doing that. Um, but it wasn't me. Um, I ended up then, uh, that was sort of mostly online advertising and it was sort of little bitsy stuff, no major projects really. But then um, my wife worked for an advertising magazine. So that wrote about, it was a trade magazine writing about advertising. 
And again, a uh, situation happened that sort of two or three journalists left at the same time and the editor was desperate, so she hired me <laughs> uh, with absolutely no journalist experience. And, um, and it's actually there that I learned a lot about advertising because that was when um, I had an open door into every advertising agency in the country who desperately wanted me to write about them so that you know, clients could then hire them. Um, and one of the things that really shocked me was realising how many psychology graduates were employed by advertising agencies. I'd never thought about this before. Why the hell would you, like, you care about human beings and you're doing advertising? Um, but, yeah, absolutely. The, the advertising agencies and people who work for them are mostly good people who, for whom this is how they can make money. Like, they're the creatives and they're the, the people who are interested in psychology. Um, but it's, it's all being used for what I would say is, is not, the, not the best Nefarious ends. purposes. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> Um, but they do. They, they are really brilliant people who are incredibly sophisticated in the way they manipulate human beings, and I was, I was both awed and um, terrified by what I what I discovered there. <laughs> and I decided I'm going to write. Uh, so what I told myself so that I could feel better, you know, align my values to what I was actually doing. I told myself I'll write an expose one day about all the things that are going on, and sort of it's still still in the back of my mind. But writing a book just seems like the most horrible experience I could ever go through. So <laughs> I haven't done it yet. Well, there's opportunities for podcasts to talk about it. Well, right? maybe that's the medium yeah. I should go for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Kate Raworth, going back to your economic man, Kate mm. Raworth actually has been promoting a study, I can't remember the name of it though, where economic students, the more they learn about economic man, the more they become like economic man. Yep. And that's a pretty interesting one. But um, I've often thought, like you were talking about different mediums and advertising, I've often thought that economic man would make a really good political cartoonist <laughs> character. Because there are so many sides to economic man. There's this grasping thing. But there's also, if you're thinking about, say, buying a car or something, economic man pops up in your brain yeah. like a, I don't know, some sort of spectre and goes, right, you've got to get this. So you've got to sort out all those values. Yeah. Yeah, yeah look, I, I just spoke a little bit about my sort of career progression and um, – Economic man was there with me the whole time, right? Yes. So my, my values, sort of university education, I un, all of a sudden I sort of middle-class mm -hmm. kid all my life, white, male, privileged, um, and then I went to uni and I realised how the world worked and I was shocked. <laughs> um, I'm very, I'm very, um, uh, very grateful to the, the political economy uh, lecturers and, and, and tutors who sort of gave me my political education there. But that turned me into someone who was desperate to correct the injustice of the world because I just couldn't believe how bad they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So naive. Um, and uh, anyway, so then I was desperately wanting to do something useful for the world. But what I found myself doing every time I took a job, which um, so when I went from the advertising agency to journalism, um, it was a, a sort of a pay cut of at least half kind of thing, right? Um, and I went from sort of running an agency to being a lowly journalist at the bottom of the of the rung and and I did that because I thought if if I'm going to be I, advertising doesn't work for me that's not what I want to do with my life I was I was doing websites for mining companies it just didn't fit um, so that's why I left the advertising world and into journalism but what I told my friends is uh, I'm doing this because I'm going to be invited to all these cool advertising parties and boozy lunches. And I focused on all those things, all those uh, extrinsic sort of 
power achievement related values when I was explaining my career move because I thought that was the socially accepted way of choosing a job. And then when I um, was at that advertising magazine, I eventually uh, was sort of asked by the editor to replace her. And so I had this opportunity to become the editor. And it was at that moment that it got real for me and I thought, okay, journalism is fun, but writing about advertising, (laughs) not really my values or what I care about in life. Do I really want to help advertisers do their job better? Um, And that's when I started to look for roles and I eventually found a a sort of a lowly social marketing, uh, social media role, which at that time, that was a new thing at uh, an international aid organisation. I thought that's again a pay cut of half and a really junior role, whereas I could be the editor of this magazine. You know, people go on to work for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian after that kind of thing. And um, again, motivated by my values because I didn't care about advertising and I didn't care about being editor. Um, But I explained my choice to people in terms of, you know, I'll be able to do international travel. There'll be free trips all over the world to exotic locations. And, And again, I found myself telling people all the reasons that didn't matter to me because I thought they were the socially accepted reasons for doing it. So I don't know if you've come across the work of Will Schultz. Are you familiar with Will Schultz? No. Uh, anyway, he pioneered something called FIRO theory, and it was he used to actually do um, work for the government to put together submarine crews and things like that based yep. on values, thinking, and behaviour. And they didn't want a top-down hierarchy in a submarine because apparently it doesn't work as well. You actually need to question authority in a submarine so you don't all die. Apparently That's that comes up quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so he did this thing called FIRO theory, and one of the things you're talking about here very much aligns with um, one of the components, which is um, three core pieces of the theory. is the significance, competence, and likability is what drives us to make decisions. And it sounds like from what you're saying, that significance piece, right, it was driven more by it needing to be significant and possibly likeable than it was to appear competent yeah. or to appear, um, you know, aligned with something more altruistic. Yeah, and it's, it, it, I just look back and I didn't realise mm-hmm. I was doing this at the time, but I just, once I then came across this values model and I was looking at it going, oh my God, mm-hmm. my whole life makes sense now. <laughs> I can see the way in which I was doing this. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm so, that's when eventually sort of I left that that aid organisation to establish Common Cause because I'd come across the approach. I'd started to implement it and then Tony Abbott got elected and I realised, you know, it's not enough for me just to implement this values approach in my work. The rest of the progressive movement needs to do the same. Um, We need to work together on this. So thank you, Tony. So thanks, Tones. Um, Yeah, so and that was when I I looked back and I thought, well, I've just totally bought into this idea that we have to justify everything based on individualism and, and selfishness mm-hmm. um, and we've all got to stop doing that. You know, I had a really interesting story. A, a relative of mine actually came across Tony Abbott in a hospital before he was um, an influential politician and he didn't know who he was but he saw him do something that was very empathetic. There was mm. a woman who had just lost a family member um, and was on the floor of a corridor in the hospital crying and sobbing and just an absolute emotional wreck and Tony Abbott went and sat on the floor next to her and talked to her and listen to her. And that doesn't align with the Tony Abbott that no, I know in my no. head. But and there's that piece, right? Like that yeah. we, we all have these pieces. It's just how we choose to steer them. Exactly. And and that's it. I've and sort of mm-hmm. living in his electorate, mm-hmm. I hear the more softer stories mm-hmm. of him as well. Mm-hmm. And and certainly have heard a lot of examples of him mm-hmm. expressing lots of benevolence, uh, sort of caring mm-hmm. for people around him I and, think and he had showing a background that in pastorship or something too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, that he might sort come of almost it. became a priest, then he became <laughs> prime minister instead. Yeah. Um, and, and for me it's 
Yes, so he is probably mm. a, a full human being. Mm-hmm. The only people who don't have all the values, according mm-hmm. to the research, are psychopaths, mm-hmm. and, and maybe he's not a psychopath, mm-hmm. given those examples. Um, but I suppose for me, it's the the values that he was explicitly trying to engage in Australians in order to compel them to vote for him that was the thing that really bothered me. Mm-hmm. The idea that he could go for selfishness, that he could go for racism and mm-hmm. sexism, and then get elected uh, was what was what bothered me about him. Yeah. Well, something we're going to be talking about with the folks that are coming in um, a bit later, the Extinction Rebellion folks, mm. is they were talking about citizens' assemblies a lot. Like, how do you bypass the influence of, say, the, the Rupert Murdoch empire and big corporate lobbies throwing money at election campaigns in order to, you know, to, to curry favour? Mm. You, you use a citizens' assembly and then it sort of lets the politicians off the hook because then they don't have to answer to the corporate entities, they can say, well, it's a citizen's decision. So how does that fit into your work there with the uh, idea fits, of citizens' assembly? It fits really perfectly um, because we know uh, studies show that mm-hmm. more hierarchical sort of top-down <laughs> organisations, they tend to prime and engage and strengthen mm-hmm. more individualistic power achievement values, more flat structures mm-hmm. where people have more of a voice tend to engage mm-hmm. uh, what we call intrinsic values. Mm-hmm. So that And that includes self-direction values, by the mm-hmm. way, which includes things like creativity, curiosity, out-of-the-box thinking, choosing your own goals um, and so it, it it fits really well the idea of more citizen engagement um, giving people much more of a say and more equal voice in decisions mm-hmm. is absolutely um, totally aligned from a values perspective mm-hmm. yeah. and what we also found when we were doing the election series here was that we had uh, somebody in from CAPAD so the Canberra Alliance for Participatory Democracy mm-hmm. which was also encouraging the politicians who were running to share a bit about their humanness and yeah. to create a connection with the electorate from a human place, not from a campaign place or a platform place. And and one of the gentlemen we had in, um, Andrew Braddock, who did get elected in the yeah. uh, electorate of Yarrabee, he shared that he actually wrote something like, oh, I can't remember the exact number, but it was almost like 60,000 personal notes to yes. everybody in his electorate <laughs> and people who and they were, they were in his electorate which includes the high density area of Gungal and there's a lot of you know people who've recently immigrated to Australia maybe not that familiar with the Australian political system you know and they, they said that made all the difference to them in, in mm. a decision not necessarily about the, the party's policies but it was that this one individual had taken time and he'd written them a handwritten note yeah mm. look mm. We like to think about about ourselves as rational mm-hmm. creatures that are sort of driven mm-hmm. by all the facts and figures mm-hmm. before us, but the reality is where most of the decisions we make in day-to-day life are, are, are emotional. Mm-hmm. They're driven by our emotions and then we post-rationalise mm-hmm. using all the facts and figures mm-hmm. that align with that emotive decision. Um, and I think that's a lot of what goes on, on in politics. People don't vote based on policies. I mean, if they do, doesn't the ABC vote compass say that the Greens would be running the country? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like people... Uh, much more influenced by how they feel about a politician than, you know, the exact substance of that person's policies and so on. So one of the things that we did with the Greens in in the last election here in the ACT was focused very much on making sure that when we do present all those policies, and there was a lot of policies, that they are all presented in a way that tells that story that engages people at an emotional level and leading with a vision. What are the outcomes that we want for our community? Not how many houses are we going to build, but what does that mean in terms of what we care about as as a community? Um, as opposed to focusing purely on all the facts and figures and certainly as opposed to talking about how much money we wanted for this or for that. Mm-hmm. There's something I saw on your website. And so, Scotty, if I'm jumping... No. 
Um, something called the Perceptions Matter Report. Yes. And yep. that fascinated me. So it was a large-scale research project. I should let you tell us about it, actually, rather than me reciting what was on your website. I'd love so, to hear your summary, but yeah, I, I'm yeah. happy to happy to. Yeah, no, please yeah. give us an because that, that was quite relevant to the whole um, Brexit thing and what was going on in the United States as well. Yeah, absolutely. So this was a uh, study conducted, oh, I don't know, maybe you've got it in front of you, uh, <laughs> a few years ago, um, and I think it was 2016 where the, the data was collected. It was before Brexit was a, a thing that people thought could happen and before Trump uh, became uh, the president of the United States um, that first time. And uh, what it found is that it, it did a study, a huge study of values in America and values in the UK, right? So really good timing, um, total coincidence. And so they asked people a whole bunch of different values questions, which are standard questions used in the, in the peer-reviewed academic research on values. And it, it found that the vast majority of Americans, the vast majority of people in the UK value intrinsic values far more, self-transcending values, sort of universalism and benevolence, far more than they value achievement and power values. But what it did then is it asked all the same questions again of the same people, but this time instead of reflecting on themselves as they answered the question, it was asked them to reflect on, in the UK, for example, the average British citizen. And then people filled in the survey again, sort of their, their assumptions or perceptions of the average citizen in their country, and they pretty much found the opposite, right? The majority of people found, thought that other people were more selfish in their values orientation than them. So what that shows is is a huge gap between uh, the values that we hold personally and as a majority as, and the values that we think that other people value. And what we found is that the higher that perception gap, so the d difference between your values and your perception of others, um, the less likely you were to be politically engaged, the less likely you were to sort of having voted at the last election when we asked that question, and the less likely you were to sort of do things like attend protests or volunteer for a, for a community organisation or even to believe that having a conversation with people in your community about the issues you care about would actually make any difference at all. So it's really disempowering mm -hmm. to have an incorrect and negative view of other people's mm -hmm. values. Um, so for me, one of the implications of that is that if we can, if we've got to stop telling this, uh, you know, this economic man story, right? Yeah, like um, your work. If you'd said what you were really doing, it would have influenced your friends. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe some people would have made better career choices and be happier <laughs> as a result. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've got to stop reinforcing this narrative that people are selfish mm -hmm. and we do that every time we justify our mm -hmm. policies based on what's in it for you mm -hmm. or we do it every time that we justify dealing with mental illness based mm -hmm. on the impact on the economy mm. or um, demonizing the poor with new start or what is it job, all job seeking stuff. all of this stuff yeah. yeah but what what bothers me the most is seeing progressive causes right mm. seeing environmentalists seeing people who are deeply concerned about poverty for example justifying their policies based on the impact on the economy mm. right because then they they're totally buying into it they're reinforcing the idea that people only care about themselves and therefore that's what they're bringing out and they're also disempowering people who otherwise might get active because they feel like what can change when everyone else around me is a horrible person which mm. is just not true so we're getting close to, to winding up here, Mark. So I just wanted to ask you uh, one question here. You're a newer resident of Canberra. So in your short time in Canberra, where have you observed the Common Cause model most in use and where is it desperately needed? Oh, wow. Um, oh, look, I've been, I was, a lot of the work that I did for the 
Greens mm-hmm. in their in their campaign, mm-hmm. partly driven by the fact that I um, the the current mm-hmm. federal candidate for the for the Greens is Tim Hollow. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a friend of mine before I moved here. He's actually the one that convinced me to come here. Yeah, we had him a couple months ago. In the yeah, studio. yeah. Tim's great. All into that participatory democracy stuff. Really, really smart, intelligent guy. Um, so I, I think the Greens have really done an amazing job of challenging themselves mm-hmm. and challenging all of these ways of working. And in the political sphere, it's the area where um, I, when I initially started Common Cause, there was the most pushback because people said, this sounds like fluffy, you know, C-R-A-P, I'm not sure if you can say that on radio. Um, you can spell it. <laughs> okay, well, I did. Um, it, it, this doesn't sound like the sort of thing that would actually fly in a political sense because that's where people are hard-nosed and you've got to talk about realities, you've got to talk about politics and power and money and what's in it for you. And so when the Greens took this on and we ran workshops with all the volunteers, everyone working on the campaign to really help them understand and sort of break through this idea that people are inherently selfish and we can bring out good in people and and it's already there in abundance. Um, They've really taken that on and the fact that they had such a good outcome in the last election fills me with so much hope because that is a case study I can use to tell others, look, in a really tough uh, issue area like politics, Um, they managed to take this on and it worked. So it should be able to work everywhere else as well. Um, Where it hasn't worked as well, I don't know. And I don't know in a a Canberra context. Mm. Don't want to... Maybe we should say everywhere. <laughs> anyone, who, anyone who is appealing to people's hip pockets or economic rationale or self-interest in order to get them to care more about other people or the environment is on the wrong track as far as I'm concerned. But it's very natural to, to, to go down that wrong track. So I've got three questions that I want to ask okay. you. I'm going to have to bring it down to one because there's just not enough time. Do you reckon people change the way their values manifest when they're thinking about different scales so if they're just thinking about the individual or maybe the family then the extended family or the neighborhood and then the the city the country the world that sort of thing what what, i'll bring that back to the perceptions matter study Mm -hmm. and what we know from that and subsequent research is that People are more cynical about other people's values the further they get out from themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So we assume that our friends are nice people we have, uh, and our family are, are genuinely nice people, even if we don't agree politically with them, for example. But then sort of community, country and then world, we start to get more cynical about the values of others, probably because we haven't had that relationship. We haven't had that contact. We're not seeing them as full human beings. Yeah. And I think at a normative level, the way that we sort of think of what are the accepted values of you know, this group – the further you'll go out from the individual, the more sceptical you become about that and therefore probably the more you tend to not live your values or express your values as I did with my career changes as strongly. And I think we've seen that in people who've talked about, you know, having been kidnapped um, and held to ransom in different circumstances and that humanising themselves in their eyes of their kidnappers as, as a really strong survival tactic. Like mm. once their kidnappers start to see them as a, as a person rather than an object. Which is absolutely <laughs> tapping into the intrinsic values mm. of that person who has kidnapped you. <laughs> yeah. You might have done it for financial gain. Yeah. Yep. yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, that values map that we talked about before, that can be found on the website, can't it? It's in the Common Cause handbook. Yes. So Common Cause is a creative, commons, share-alike project. Um, so we very much want the information and resources to be distributed as widely as possible. If I could quit this and get a real job, I'd be really happy, mm-hmm. but <laughs> too much demand at the moment. Um, yeah, so commoncause.com.au. If you head there, one of the things you'll find on our homepage is, well, two things you'll find. The Common Cause Handbook, which I strongly recommend you have a look at if you're interested in the value system, how it works and how to sort of use it to, to progress social environmental causes. Uh, and then also the Perceptions Matter study that we've been speaking about is also on that homepage just because it is so fascinating and so useful. Mm. And you have a couple of great downloadable guides there too and this amazing article on bushfires and climate change there I saw as well. That yeah, so some good resources that people News and blog section, yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, there's also a link to our global website so where uh, there's a whole bunch of other resources. Great. And you've got some, uh, some workshops and online training coming up soon? Yes, yeah. we're in the middle of a fundamentals course at the moment um, and we'll be introducing a new fundamentals course in December that I'll be running. So I'm looking forward to that. We haven't got dates yet or you won't be able to find it on the website, but if you go to our website and sign up to the email list, we'll let you know when the next course is running. Okay, well, that's fantastic. It's been such a pleasure having you with us, Mark. Um, hopefully we can have you back in a little while and hear a bit more, maybe post the next election with the election results. We'll see how that goes. Exactly. I'd love that. Yeah. So that was uh, Mark Chenery with Common Cause ACT in Australia. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au that's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.